Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, (coughs) chapter 3. Verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Father, my prayer is that every soul in here will not see death in Judgment Day before they are born again. So give us, give us all Ears to hear and eyes to see and hands of our hearts to embrace the Word of Life, the Gospel of Jesus, to the glory of His name. Amen. My experience at age 19 bewildered my parents. When a 19-year-old kid comes and just says, I've become a Christian. And they looked at me and said, what are you talking about? We raised you in the church. We raised you as a Christian. You've always been a Christian. But no, I've become a Christian. It was much like the theologian R.C. Sproul's experience. When he was in college, he had an experience that utterly transformed his life. And he was already engaged to Vesta, and he poured out his heart to his fiance Vesta, telling her about this. I'm a Christian now. And I pick up R.C. writes. Vesta looked at me and said, What do you mean that you're a Christian? You've always been a Christian. You were baptized, confirmed, and all the rest. As the months passed, what I hoped would enhance my relationship with my fiancé instead prompted a severe strain. I soon discovered that not many people shared my enthusiasm about being born again. My mother felt I was rejecting her and her values. My sister was hostile. My friends were incredulous. My minister, of all people, called me a damn fool. Eventually, R.C. got vested to go with him to some Christian meeting. I pick up. That night, she attended a prayer meeting with me. She was reluctant. She was suspicious. She was frustrated by my insistence that we go, that she go with me to, quote, this religious thing. In the middle of the prayer meeting, she, like John Wesley at Aldersgate, felt her heart strangely warmed. Like Augustine in the garden and Martin Luther in the tower, she saw the gates of paradise open and she walked through. After the meeting, with an excitement that exceeded my own, she said these exact words, Now I know who the Holy Spirit is. This is the third week 
in this series on the person in the work of the Holy Spirit. The first sermon was on the question, who is the Holy Spirit? The second was, the Holy Spirit is the author of this book, the infallible, inerrant word. And this third week is going to close the foundation of this whole series because these three together are so essential to never let go in any and everything we talk about the next two months about the workings of the Holy Spirit. And that is this this week. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes and causes sinful human beings to be born again. And this internal awakening that is initiated by the Holy Spirit is the very beginning of everything else. It's the beginning of a person's ability to walk by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit ongoingly, to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. All of that stuff, all the stuff we will be talking about has a beginning. Instantaneous start. And that's this morning's sermon. It has that beginning because nobody in this world comes into the world with desires for God. With a desire to delight in their Creator. With a desire to embrace the Savior. But instead, as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, we were all by nature children of wrath as the rest of mankind. No one, not my children, comes into this world with a bent to delight in God, to obey God, to enjoy God. But all of us as sinners have a natural bent to find our joy and our happiness and our satisfaction in any or everything else other than in God. And so therefore, something has to happen to a human being or they will never be saved. Or as Jesus says in our text this morning, they will never enter the kingdom of God. There has to be a profound internal change. Listen to how, for a minute, I'm going to string together a bunch of Bible passages just just to get the feel of what the Bible says about the change that must happen in each human being. Romans 6 says we must cease being slaves of sin and become slaves of God. We must die with Christ and rise to newness of life in Him. We must put off the old man and put on the new man who's created after the likeness of God. We must repent That is, we must experience a change of mind and of desires. We must have a heart transplant, according to Ezekiel 36.26. 
Quote, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. We must be a new creation according to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in our text, as Jesus says, unless a person is born again, he or she shall never see nor enter the kingdom of God. So the scripture is clear. There has to be this profound change. But as we read the Bible carefully, it just seems to slam the door shut time and again on the possibility of our ever changing ourselves. Listen to how it's said in Jeremiah 13.23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? You just think about it. Okay, what's the obvious answer? They can't change their skin or sense their nature. Okay. Well, if they could, if they could, then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Can change your nature. Can a man who is in love with money enter the kingdom of God? Jesus says it is impossible by Himself. He says, actually, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Can a natural person, my babies, we bring them home from the hospital, can they, in their nature in which they are born, appreciate the gospel of Christ And believe and be saved. Paul says, no. A natural person, literally in the Greek, natural man means natural human being in their nature, cannot. This is how he writes it in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Because, to them, the natural person, they are foolishness to him. So they'll never accept it. He goes on, he says, and he, the natural person, is not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. We, by nature, cannot. See, and we cannot please God as Paul writes in Romans 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Because it does not submit to God. Indeed, it can not submit to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please 
God. Can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? We're gonna, you know this, right? This is what Nicodemus is gonna ask. We're talking about Jesus. Can that happen? Come on. Jesus meant for Nicodemus to be stunned. And the question this morning is, do we feel what Jesus means for us to feel in this text? Unless a person is born a second time, they will never enter the kingdom of God. One of the reasons so many of us evangelicals do not jump up and down over the doctrine of new birth, otherwise known as regeneration. If you ever hear that term, it means the same thing. To become alive again when you're dead, regenerate. The reason that we don't jump up and down over Jesus' words here in chapter 3 is because we don't understand it. We don't really get what it is if we're Christians What has happened to us? When we read in John 3, bring our Bibles home, I'm a Christian, it happened to me in 1981, and you read this, and on the surface of the page, yes, it does seem to say, if I read it carefully, God did this act. And yet, because of the influence of evangelical Christian culture and leaders in the church, we walk away knowing it cannot really mean what it says on the page. So as we look at this text in John 3 this morning, let's pray that we feel. Let's pray that we feel and believe what Jesus meant for Nicodemus and for us to feel and to believe. See, this text, it causes something if we pay attention to the Word. This is why it's so connected last week on the Bible. The Word of the Holy Spirit. Sound person. It's, it's meant to cause a particular shock. As if Jesus were 3,000 feet suspended in the air and He says, Joe, Flap your arms and fly to me. And we're just like, what? That's this text. If you leave church today thinking, same words as Nicodemus, how can these things be? No, 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 how can that be? Then you probably are getting close to hearing what the intended meaning of the text is. Are you there, John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus starts. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That text ever bugged you? 
Nicodemus has not asked him a question yet. And Nicodemus comes not as an enemy, but as a friend. And Jesus has a lot of enemies. And Nicodemus, look, we believe you're from God. Jesus has got a, a guy cheering for him. And he cuts him off and he starts talking. Nicodemus, unless a person's born again, they will never see the kingdom of God. It seems as if Jesus took a bucket of ice water and just dumped it on this guy's zeal. Why did he do that? The answer is the context. You see where it says that big three, meaning chapter three? That's not Bible. That's added later, and it's really helpful. I can tell you where to turn, but that's not part of the text, okay? So just read the first, the few verses before what we are reading. And we'll see, because here's the question, they were just hanging in the air. Why, Jesus? I mean, this guy's got a lot of enthusiasm. Just grab him. You can start a new church with that kind of enthusiasm. You're from God. We see your signs. And he squelches it. Because, start with verse 23 of chapter 2. John gives us this larger context. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John gives us some theology here. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? That's what the next word because is going to answer. Because he knew all people. That's why. And he needed no one to bear witness about man because he, Jesus himself, knew what was in humanity or man. Here's a question now at this point. What, is, what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean that Jesus knew humanity? That he knew what we really, all of us, are. And that because of that knowledge, it causes Jesus to not entrust himself to man. What does that mean? The answer is in what comes next. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, like the many, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Cut him off, Jesus. Tell you the truth, Nicodemus. Unless you or anyone is born again, they can never See the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay. So what is it that Jesus knew about us human beings that causes Him to say this? Even about religious folks like Nicodemus? What He knew is this, that we're not born again. And that's the rest of this sermon in two parts. The first part, if you look through the eyes of Jesus, what is His anthropology? What is His understanding of the human race? This God-human who came into the world. What is His understanding about all mankind? And then secondly, the remedy. Being Born of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And now watch, he goes on to explain why. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is Spirit. So, so far, look. A sperm meets an egg. We have a human being. Flesh. Now, human being will develop and that human being will grow with all of its nature. Its natural desires and inclinations. That which is born of the flesh is flesh flesh. That's what we have so far. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Something's different with that. Now, the, instead of the natural appetites and inclinations of the flesh, born of the flesh, now there is appetite for God if you're born of the Spirit. And that does not happen when we bring our babies home from the hospital. That's a different kind of birth called being born of God Himself, the Holy Spirit of God. It's a miracle that changes a person from the natural, fleshly state. So I'm just going to go really slowly in this text. Jesus, what is your view of man? And break it up into four parts. First, he just said about the human race, that which is born of the flesh, it's what it is. It's flesh. And in context, though, he says that as opposed to those who are born of the Spirit are spirit. Okay, so I think what he must mean here by that which is born of the flesh, it's flesh, means 
those humans who are alive, they're walking around, and they're devoid of the Holy Spirit indwelling them in the sense of having been born of the Spirit. They are walking around disconnected from God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, dwelling in them, connecting them in fellowship with the Godhead. As we saw two weeks ago, the Holy Spirit is the personification of the joy, the worship, the delight that is in God. The flesh are people walking around without that personification coming into their heart having made those desires their desires. Make sense? Here's how the Apostle Paul says it. He says, before a person is born again or born of the Spirit, they are the natural person. We've already read that. But it's so worth reading again. You come in the world, that which is flesh is flesh, and this is what you are. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Indeed, they cannot get it. But then something happens. They're born in the Spirit. And then Paul goes on to say, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, but the spiritual person, why are they spiritual? Because as Jesus says, they've been born of the Spirit. To them they get it. They have eyes to see. Or Paul says in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me. He he clarifies, that is in my flesh. So does this flesh that we still carry around with being born of the Spirit, something's happening in the Christian life. And Paul distinguishes this battle that's going on. Paul unfolds the works of the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. If a person is only born of the flesh, this is their lifestyle in one way or another. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Jesus knew all men, John tells us. And he did not have a very high view of humanity. And he means me. In you. Secondly, concerning Jesus' view of the human race, he understood that the entire human race was by its nature spiritually dead. Thus, unless something happens to change that, called being born of the Spirit, it's over. And by spiritually dead, he doesn't mean asleep or in a coma that they can be awakened from. He understands all human beings. No, they're alive. They're alive in one sense. They walk around. But spiritually, concerning the Creator and righteousness, they're dead. 
absolutely dead. Because he goes on to say, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So that implies in Jesus' mouth that there are those who are just born of the flesh, walking around and living in this life, who are not spiritually alive. All of this points back to the beginning of the Bible. It points back to the garden. Adam, man, our representative. As they walk in the cool of the day, and Adam fellowships with God with no problem. And Adam, everything I've made here, every tree, every fruit, look at it. It's all yours. Enjoy it to your delight. Just can, can, trust me in this, Adam. Eat your fill. Oh, just, just one thing. There's just one, one tree. Just one tree, Adam. This one, don't partake. For in the day that you stop trusting me in this, the day that you think you can be independent from me and not as a child to me who, who really loves you and wants to be everything to you, Adam, the day you do that, you will surely die. Adam disobeyed. Ceased to trust God's Word. Sin came in and it was over. Death invaded his soul. And eventually, his body. The Holy Spirit in this saving or this grace-filled way, departed. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, in death through sin, therefore, Death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam fell into spiritual darkness. His nature, in this sense, changed where his humanity became in its nature fallen or sin nature. Merely flesh now, devoid of the Spirit. That makes sense? And when Adam and Eve have a baby, that baby is not born like Adam was before the fall. That baby, and that baby's baby, and that baby's 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 baby, 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 got the idea? is born just like their father. A fallen, sin-embedded, rotten, spiritually dead human being. There is only one humanity. And Adam was the representative of it. When people balk at what I had just said there now, 
Or what Paul makes so crystal clear all the way through Romans chapter 5. When Christians balk at that, I look, I'm just wondering, do you have any idea what the gospel of Jesus Christ is? (laughs) But no, I didn't do it. Adam and one man did it. I know, do you not understand the gospel? Jesus, the the Bible calls him this second representative. Second Adam. One man came, Christian, in order to deliver us from our spiritual death into eternal life. One man and one man who lived in perfect human righteousness as our representative. For all who are being saved. That his life is imputed, his perfect righteousness, to every believer whom he's saving, just as our sin was imputed to him on the cross. This is why it's so beautiful to the Apostle Paul. Because Jesus taught him, as we saw last time, and he told us, this is way it is. And the more we who are in Christ get that, the more we will sing and we will dance at this glorious saving truth of new birth. So that state of man now, let's go to the third part, leads Jesus to say what He says. Therefore, unless You know that word. We use it all the time. Let me just... Therefore, no one will get into the kingdom of God. Makes sense. At least if you've you've followed me so far and you got that, just think logically. Yeah, it's over. And then Jesus uses the word, unless, unless one is born again. Well, unless that happens, he cannot see the kingdom of God because a dead, a spiritually dead, a, a no taste buds for God in his glory person, which is all of us born into this world. He says, by nature we are locked outside of the kingdom of God. That is, out of the saving, sweet rule and reign over our souls forever that Christ brought. We're locked outside of it. We'll never enter it. But the wrath of God will hang over us until judgment day. And it's enacted. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Starting with verse 1. Christian, if you are a believer, it's because you've been born again. And if you're born again, Paul writes this to us. And you were, past tense, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all 
once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No wonder Nicodemus is stunned. He was one of the religious elites. He's convinced of Jesus' ministry being truly of God. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you or anyone else is born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God, but instead you will perish in your sin. He's stunned. Which leads to the fourth thing to notice. Jesus says what he says to a religious person. Not only a religious person, a person who, in a sense, is essentially clergy. And not even in a false religion with false text. He had the right books, Moses and the prophets, and he says it to him. It's possible, and 2,000 years of church history has borne this out time and time again, for a person to be a church-going person who keeps religious ritual down to the T, who intellectually affirms the tenets of Christianity, of the Gospel of Christ, in their mind. They may be a professor of New Testament theology in a seminary, or pastor of a local church, and never have been born In the context of John, many religious people saw Jesus' signs and that text says they believed. But Jesus says, it's not true saving faith unless it is that which was birthed by the Holy Spirit. Because all persons are by nature flesh dead to God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And they cannot have genuine faith unless they're born again. So what do we do? It's no wonder that the last words that come out of Nicodemus' mouth in this text, in his bewilderment, is how can these things be? What are we supposed to feel? What are we supposed to think? Okay, I think at least this. Desperation. Isn't that why Jesus said in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then He says to Nicodemus, don't be shocked. Because Jesus knows. If you're getting what he's saying, it's shocking. That's what he means there by thalmazo in the Greek. Don't, be, don't marvel. It doesn't mean don't marvel like, ooh, that's really cool. It means like just you're freaked out. It's like, what are you talking about? Don't be utterly shocked or amazed that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus and us, what he means by being born again in verse 8. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, evidence of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You don't see wind. When you're on a golf course or you watch these guys on TV and they're caddy and they're throwing grass into the air. They're, they're trying. They can't see wind, but they want to see the effects of wind. Look at that. It looks like it's probably going 15 miles an hour to the right, Tiger, so you need to aim a little left. They're looking at the trees. You're going to see its effects. You don't see. You don't even know where it's coming from. You can't predict it. He says, new birth is like that. It's like the wind that blows, and notice the words, that blows according to its wishes. And we see the effects. There are so many of us people who have had the Ace in the mercy of the Holy Spirit's wind blow upon our lives and cause us to come to faith in Jesus. But we don't believe what Jesus is teaching because we want to control the Spirit. We think we can say, pull this lever, sinner. Let me teach you how to do it. Just do this and then you will be born again. That's what we want to do. If you'll just walk down the aisle, come up here and say the sinner's prayer. Kaboom! That will cause the wind to blow. And Jesus says, you don't know where it's coming from. It's not in your control. You only see the effects. You don't cause it. Jesus purposed to get rid of that kind of religion by what he says in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying that being born again by the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with anything that any person does. It's the sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit causing dead people to come to life. The best biblical analogy is standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out! Now Jesus isn't stupid. And the text says He raised His voice when He did it. He didn't raise His voice because He thought, if I say it a little bit louder, then maybe the sound waves will hit Lazarus' dead body. It'll go through his eardrum and into his brain and he'll say, oh, okay, I'll respond. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, come out, because he knew that his very call would produce 
what He calls for. The Gospel comes to a 13-year-old little girl or a 56-year-old man preaching on the streets in a church, Gideon's Bible in a hotel room, whatever it is. The Gospel comes and the Holy Spirit blows with the wind. And those two persons... This is amazing. Jesus is so sweet. This is good. This is, I can't believe this. How did this happen? And then a well-meaning pastor says to the 13-year-old girl, it happened because you said the sinner's prayer. Oh, okay, they know better. And the whole culture tells you that. So you just start to repeat that. And now you've got a theology on how it happens and you read it into everything. But Jesus is clear. You do not enter the kingdom of God in order to be born again. You do not come to saving faith in order to be born again. You get born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. You get born again in order to believe and embrace Jesus in the Gospel. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is clear. All human beings are flesh. And if we are only alive according to the flesh, mom and dad, here we are, and I live, then you will never, ever want to truly enter the kingdom of God. You will never want to embrace Jesus the King. You won't recognize the kingdom of God for the treasure in the field that it truly is. And if you're a believer, you know that you can preach until you're blue in the face to loved ones, friends, and you should, and you ought, and we're commanded to, on the street or in the church. And they look at you cockeyed like, Oh, okay. And you're thinking, how can you not see it? When Jesus tells you the same reason you didn't see it until the wind blew. They can't see it until verse 6b. They're born of the Holy Spirit in order that they may taste and see that Jesus is good. That's the Holy Spirit's role in the salvation of sinners. That's the beginning, instantaneous beginning, of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Now, before I close, what I want to do, I just want to, I want to turn to a couple other texts Outside of Jesus were his mouthpieces. 
the apostles, will 25, 30 years later write essentially the exact same thing Jesus is teaching in John 3 and just do it in their own words, being guided by the Holy Spirit. So first, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, First Corinthians 1. Just notice now as we're going to read this, Paul, Paul knows exactly what Jesus has taught here. He knows that unless a person's eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit blowing, then that person would not see the kingdom of God when it is preached. They wouldn't see it as the treasure that it is. They won't believe and be saved. Notice... He uses his own words and how he says it. Start with verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Well, there's lots of wise people, human beings. Flesh is flesh. That's what they are. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. God and Paul, by the Spirit of God, has no problem saying, in light of the world, in that which is flesh is flesh and all of its wisdom, the gospel of a guy at the end of a hangman's noose is your salvation or crucifixion is stupid. So watch what he says. God purposed this. It pleased Him through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Now watch Him unfold it. For, here we go, Jews demand signs. Jesus, we see all your works. You must be from God, Nicodemus. Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. Not what we give them. But we preach Christ slaughtered execution style. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles, everybody else. That which is flesh is flesh. So everyone born into the world is flesh, and if that is all that has happened to them, when you preach the gospel, Paul's saying, they won't believe. No human beings will ever be saved by Christ. If you just preach, there must be something else that happens. The wind of the Holy Spirit must sovereignly Blow, Jesus says. Or let's listen to Paul say the same thing in different words. First, he's just said no one's going to ever believe it. And they don't. Lots of them just don't. That which is of the flesh is flesh. We preach. 
It's a stoning block to the Jews, and then to the rest of the world, it's, you're out of your mind, Paul. It's craziness. Verse 24. But to those who are called. From both Jews and Greeks. Something's different. To them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But at age 19 in 1981, Joe, believe, see, and boy, did my life turn around. I can't believe it. He died for me. What happened? No, no. The wind blew. I was called. And everyone whom He calls according to Paul here by definition, they believe. Nicodemus, one day I'm going to send my apostle to the Gentiles and no one is going to believe when he preaches. No one is going to respond positively to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Nicodemus. Unless the wind of the Spirit calls them. Earlier, you remember when I read from Ephesians 2, Paul made it very clear that every one of us human beings by our very nature are born into spiritual darkness, sin. We are literally spiritually Dead, following the desires of the flesh, that which is flesh is flesh. Okay, now you pick it up because he comes to verse 4. And he says, But God. That's the gospel. Not, but a pot smoking drunk. 19-year-old Joe LeMay one day said, hey, I'll turn the light on so I'll see the light of the glory of the Gospel of Christ. Or I, Joe LeMay, somehow was smarter than my siblings or my peers because I figured out the, I mean the, secret of life. Eternal life. Whoo! not what Paul says. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us who now believe. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now here's the verb. But God made us alive together with Christ. And no wonder Paul can't contain himself. By grace, you have been saved. If you turn to one more, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's also very clear on the doctrine of regeneration. Or doctrine of new birth, meaning the same thing. But let me just let me make a parenthesis here before we read verse three. And that is, 
In our American evangelical culture, at least over the last 35 or so years, there has been an unfortunate term. It's this, a born-again Christian. Now, it really has become into vogue because of Chuck Colson, a guy who really got born again. If you have never read his book called Born Again, Chuck Colson, Watergate scandal, went to prison, working in Nixon's White House, and Jesus sovereignly saved him. Great autobiography. What with that, and then right after that, Jimmy Carter becomes president and calls himself a born-again Christian, just in the lingo. But why do I say it? Because it is utterly a confusing statement. People go around and say, hey, I'm a born-again Christian. That might imply there are other Christians who are not born again who are also genuine Christians. And it's just not true. Just but so you don't miss it. This sermon that we're hearing at the moment this morning is not about terminology. It is about the work and the actual act of God, the Holy Spirit, bringing to life sinful human beings and saving them. It's not about terms. There are, I don't know how many, but probably way too many people in American evangelicalism that call themselves, verbally refer, I'm a born-again Christian. And they're not born again. And there have been untold millions of people throughout their entire earthly life have never, ever said the words or wrote the words about themselves, I am born again. And yet they were born again. It's about the Holy Spirit's work that we're talking about, not about terminology. Okay? So, here we go. Verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1. According to His, God the Father's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again unto a living hope. I don't know how He can be more clear. He says, you didn't do it. God caused it. And it produced unto living hope. And living hope is Peter's way of saying faith, or saving faith. It brought you alive. It's the evidence. The wind blows, you hear the trees. Shh. He says new birth happens and you hear the trees. Look at that. That person has this saving, living hope in the Gospel. Preachers getting on TV and like, I think I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to be. I want to be. Okay, let me be nice. I, it's, it's called in our culture the largest church in America. When he gets on TV every week and he says, "If you said that prayer, we believe you got born again." That kind of talk for the church just has to stop. It is so deceptive. Now, just follow your eyes. Jump down to verse twenty-three of 1 Peter 1. And now Peter goes on and he says this, Since you have been born again, got it? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Okay. 
This is where last week's sermon comes together with this sermon this morning. Holy Spirit, remember last week, is the author of the Bible, of the 66 books, delivered to us. They are in words, with grammatical rules, syntax, sentences, propositions, connected to other propositions by connectives and paragraphs. They have meaning. That's last week. Peter brings them together. We, the church, take these, these words in the core of it, the message, the gospel of Christ that has been delivered to us, and we preach it, we speak it, we plead with people. We have evangelism tables. We say, can you see that in the Bible? Let me ask you a question. They will talk with you. And the, the word of God goes out. But nothing happens unless it comes together with this But don't miss this week. Any of us in here who is born again, it is only because of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit through our reading or hearing the Word of God, which was authored by the Holy Spirit and delivered by persons. And we, the church, are to know that no one out there today will ever be born again unless we tell them the gospel. Listen to how Peter says it. You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. An egg does not make a human. A sperm does not make a human. The seed must penetrate the egg. That's how God has ordained it to be. As Paul said, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? They can't. And how are they to hear without someone preaching. But we know, as we preach, speak, give the Gospel, that many hear it, and they turn away hard-hearted from it, and ultimately plunge into eternal damnation. But, also, Many hear it. And you don't even see it coming. The wind of the Spirit blows on that soul and that person is born again. The evidence of a baby born is a cry. And the evidence of a person born again It's the cry of saving faith. It's the cry of, I see this. Really? Could it be true? It's awesome. Here's how Peter describes the evidence. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 to 9, for all who are born again. Though 
You have not seen Him. You love Him. Though you do not see Him now. You know the context of Peter is there's a lot of pain in this life while this is happening. Though you do not see Him now, you rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's the evidence of the wind blowing. Let's pray. Father, would you cause this morning deeper, more penetrating thanksgiving to be given for such a great salvation in all of us? Would you produce in us those who bring glad tidings on mountains to hungry souls waiting to hear and to have conversation over the gospel because as they look back at how you used us when they look back from all eternity they will say what a great means through which God saved me produce Father more and more a settled confidence in reaching life.